that history moves in, 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 uh, as a pendulum. Mm-hmm. And we are now in, um, on, in the swing of a particular pendulum. But I believe that once that, it, it, that, that arc is exhausted, the pendulum will swing back and we will get once more. I think we will, we will have our heroes. We will have important men rise to the occasion and, and women. Um, uh, and I, 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 I have hope. I have to have hope. This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment. The conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. A Fine Spring... And a beautiful evening on May 10th, 1940, didn't seem like the type of day that would portend a sequence of events that would define our world to this day. Yet, on Winston Churchill's first day as prime minister, Hitler invaded Holland, Belgium, and Luxembourg. Poland and Czechoslovakia had already fallen. And that succeeding year, May 1940, to May 1941 saw the death of 45,000 Britons through a blistering series of bombings, a mounting risk that Germany would occupy and rule all of Europe, and the emergence of Churchill as a man that would define for all time true leadership. Eric Larson again brings his extraordinary talent for making history relevant and riveting to his latest book, Splendid and the Vile, a saga of Churchill, family, and defiance during the Blitz. We know Eric is the best-selling author of books like Devil in the City, Isaac Storm, and Dead Wake, among others, stories we might have known but never understood until Eric brought his eye and pen to the story, rewarding us all. Eric? I am honored to welcome you to Just the Right Book. Well, thank you very much for having me here. Uh, so, Eric, I learned so much uh, from this book. I, you know, I used to consider myself well-read, and then I realized how much I learned. But set the stage for us on this day in May of 1940. Yeah, well, you know, one of the, the uh, sort of remarkable things is that um, uh, Churchill always, um, throughout his career, he was actually living for that day when he would become prime minister. Mm. And so, and it's so ironic, I don't know if ironic is the right word, but the fact that on the day he becomes prime minister, the, 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 the really hot war suddenly breaks out. Now, for an ordinary man, this would probably seem like an incredibly daunting thing. And but not a good time. <laughs> not a good time. But Churchill, I, I mean, it, it, this may sound glib, but Churchill sort of, he, he thrived on war. Mm. He thrived on war. I mean, he he not in terms of he didn't he didn't love the death and so forth of 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 people, but there was something about something about the cataclysmic character of war and perhaps his ability to help manage it that that was very compelling to him. So on the one hand, um, here's this here's this 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 tremendous success becoming prime minister. On the other hand, this invasion uh, of of the Low Countries, um, and he was. He was really into it. He was fine, you know. Um, and, was he and, surprised? 
by the invasion? No. no by, was he surprised by the king well, <laughs> calling him to his office? That's a good question. You know, was he surprised? I, I, the, 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 events that, that, the events that ran up to his actual appointment as prime minister um, involve, uh, you know, the, the machinations of, of, of British politics. Um, there was a rebellion in the House of Commons. They wanted to get rid of Chamberlain because nobody felt that he was capable. Well, not nobody, but uh, you know, a significant Many. faction felt that Chamberlain was not capable of running uh, running the empire at a time of war. He was too much the uh, his nicknames were the old umbrella or the coroner. Mm. Um, so there was new blood that was wanted. And um, uh, was there a universal enthusiasm for, for Churchill? No. No, I mean Churchill. Churchill was known um, uh, to many, or or was thought of um, by many as being kind of a kind of a a, a loose cannon, mm. uh, a difficult guy, um, high energy, directed in all manner of directions. Um, so no, he did not have a hundred percent, hundred percent confidence. But people did feel that this was the energy that needed they needed. And in now. particular, Joseph Kennedy, who was the ambassador. Yeah, he was the American ambassador at that time, uh, and he did not think much of Churchill, and Churchill did not think much of Joseph Kennedy either. And did was Joseph Kennedy a fan of Neville Chamberlain? I, I don't know that actually. I you know I, I I all I'm aware of from my research is that the two of them, uh, Churchill and uh, um, and Kennedy, were not great fans of each other. Mm. So speaking of research, a lot, a lot of Brits were not actually happy with Joseph Kennedy because. Because he was um, he's sort of a pessimist. He didn't really think that Britain had much of a chance. Mm. So speaking about the research, um, you do your own research. Mm. Is, is that – that's right, Correct. right? Correct. So what – a lot has been written about Churchill, right? I mean, <laughs> Tell me about that's it. A, talk about daunting. Yes. It's pretty daunting, yes. I would think, to begin to want to address a man like Churchill on which – gazillions of pages have been written. So when you set about to do this, was there new archival material available or what What were your sources of research? Well, well I'll tell you how, how and why I decided to do this in spite of, as you say, the gazillion pages of, of I don't really know what a gazillion is, but I'm, it's probably Me more neither, than a gazillion. but I like the it's word. It's probably more than a gazillion, <laughs> honestly. I, just so much, so much research out there that, you know, when I approached this, well, first of all, I, I, I began with a very specific idea of what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. I, I wanted... I wasn't just going to write about Churchill. Everybody's done that. I wanted to – the thing that, that I was curious about is exactly how did he, his family, and their circle endure this this year, uh, in particular, the 57 straight nights of bombing by the Luftwaffe, mm -hmm. at, plus another six months of, of, of raids at intervals that were actually as intense or more intense than in the midst of the, 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 the 57 night attacks. And, and I just really wanted to know how – would somebody actually go about surviving that? I mean, think about it. You know, here we are yeah. in New York, you know, and... and uh, We had 9-11. That was... 9-11 was, was utterly traumatic. And now imagine 57 9-11s in a row and then many more over the yeah. course of the next six months. So I had a specific window. But nonetheless, when I opened that window, when I started to look into trying to, to find out how they, they went about this, 
there was this flood of information, and I had to make a, 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 a decision. I mean, there's no way that anyone can read all the material that's out there on Churchill. You would spend a decade if you really actually did set out to we'd read every single word. We'd both be retired. We'd both be retired. We'd both be dead. I mean, I mean it's, it, there, there, it's just so much material. So what I decided was, um, you know, if, if I'm going to make this fresh, I, I really have to have a sense, you know, built based on my own hardcore research in archives and so forth. So what I decided was I'm going, I was going to read, read into the canon of Churchill to the point where I understood the landscape, the basics. I understood – so I didn't say anything naive about, about mm-hmm. Churchill. But then I decided, okay, fine, good. This is, this is what I've got. I'm going into the archives. You know, um, National Archives of the UK, Library of Congress uh, here in the United States was fantastic for for a subset of what I needed. Um, of course, the Churchill Archives, Cambridge, things like that. Um, for to sort of using my lens, which is a fresh lens, actually, believe it mm-hmm. or not, with regard to Churchill, using that lens to to look through all the material that was out there in the archives and so forth. Now, a lot of people have been through these archives. Probably, but they're looking for different things, and not necessarily with your perspective. Not my perspective at all, and also they're looking for different things. You know, it's it's funny. I I it is the case that when I'm in an archive, I don't necessarily sound strange, I suppose, but I I don't necessarily know what I'm looking for, but I know it when I see it. Mm. There's a certain kind of kind of detail, certain kind of certain class of information that I'm I'm really I'm really looking for. I mean this is why for example um you know Churchill spent a lot of time at his um at the uh, official prime ministerial country house checkers. Um and so I decided okay I'm I'm going to look into details about checkers. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean like look into the the ministry of works how they how they run the house what the how they stock the bar. You know, one of my favorite details in, in, in the book is I came across this this uh, uh, this survey of checkers, and you know, I discovered that that there was in one uh, portion of the estate called the Long Walk Wood, um, there, it was overrun with rabbits, overrun with rabbits. It was a chronic problem. Rabbits at this prime ministerial country estate. Now, I don't know why I, I find that charming, but I do. And so that's in the book. Mm-hmm. I don't think anybody else had that ever. <laughs> so, right. So that's a coup. No, but 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 so there were lots of things like that, little little bits and pieces um, that 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 helped me make this a very fresh thing. Another thing, another thing. Um, I deliberately avoided watching any video. Um, any video uh, rendition of, of of Churchill. I didn't watch The Crown. To this day, I have not seen John mm-hmm. Lithgow's portrayal. Um, during the research, I did not watch the film Darkest Hour. I mm-hmm. did as the research was coming to a close. Of, of all things, I was on a British air flight um, because I didn't want somebody else's sense of Churchill populating my mind. Yeah. And my sense of Churchill is actually very different than um, in Darkest Hour. I can't speak for you – know, again, I haven't seen Lithgow. But but it was very important for me to come up with sort of with, with what I refer to as my personal Churchill um, and, you know, looking for the details that that would, would help me with, you know, answer the question that was opened by my, my lens really allowed me to say some new things. And, and the lens was to understand 
how where they, how he got, how he coped with this, where he got the resilience. Well, how how they all did this, how how Churchill in particular, mm. but how and how his his family and his advisors and how they all sort of helped each other. You know, Churchill did not win the war alone. There's a certain uh, certain tendency toward uh, hagiography, I think I pronounced that right, where, you know, he he is portrayed as often as the guy who single-handedly won the war. Um, and of course, that's not the case. He had his his hardcore advisors who, many of whom, some of whom I, I found absolutely fascinating. I mean, like Lord Beaverbrook. Um, Jones. And, uh, and well, Jones was, was, a, was a sort of a, a lower level guy, not really, qual- not really part of his Churchill's secret circle, but a very compelling guy with his whole discovery of German secret beam navigation and so forth. So that was a nice part of the story. Um, but, but, you know, when, when, one of the most interesting characters and totally fresh, totally new is um, in terms of Churchill scholarship because nobody's looked at, uh, was able to look at her diary. One other guy has looked at, one other person has looked at her diary, I gather. Um, I don't know who or what or for what project, but I got access to Mary Churchill's diary. Now, mm. Mary Churchill being the youngest living daughter of, of Church Winston and Clementine. And um, it's a wonderful diary. I think it made the book. And, and um, so. You know, in a funny coincidence, uh, so I love letters as a way of reading history. And a number of years ago, a book came out that were Clementine's and Winston's letters to each other. And they wrote to each other like two or three times a day, even when they were both in the house, right. whatever the house was. I've got the collection. And Lady Mary Soames put it together, and I invited her to come to the bookstore. Really? And she did. Really? So I actually got to have dinner with her, just me and her. And I, there were two things I found. You'll have to tell me what she was like. Well, uh, I'll tell you one quick little funny story. And it was Mary Soames, not Emma, not the No, it was Mary. It was Mary. She was like 80-something when she came to the store. Of course, she's now. Deceased. Moved on, yeah. Um, but I, I had arranged for like 4,000 different choices for her for dinner. Um, and so she comes to the store and I said, well, um, you know, what would you like to do for dinner? We could go to French. We could do it. She said, you know what I'd really like is pizza and burgundy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> what a lovely uh, and who wouldn't like pizza and burgandy? I mean, what and a we great sat in my office, which is pretty pedestrian, and we had pizza and a really fine burgundy. That's great. That's but it's great. one of the highlights of my career as a bookseller because I thought about the history that she's witnessed. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I want to I want to move for a second because. One of the things that was so striking to me in the story or in the history is in June of 1940, France falls. Right. And I don't think Roosevelt is worrying about his own reelection. There's still an isolationist temperament in the United States. Russia has not yet entered the war. I did not well, understand. Russia has, Russia has also not not entered the war. You know, they're they're right. they're clearly a play. But anyway, go ahead. They I, haven't I invaded. I understand what you mean. Yes. Yeah, they haven't yes. invaded, and I realized 
that Britain was alone. They were alone. How prepared was the Royal Air Force? How prepared was the country to be in that position? Right, right. Yeah. Um, so first, first a qualification, and I, I, it's, it's interesting. There was a certain, certain, certain um, cadre of of scholars who challenged that Britain was alone. Idea, um, the idea that Britain was alone. They had vast resources to draw on: New Zealand, Australia, India, and so forth. And so, some people like to sort as of, their uh, as yes, their and, yes, commonwealth. Yes, and and these the, and as we know, the Australians and New Zealand and and India provided significant forces to 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 bolster the, the the British. So, but that's a little sort of sort of you know weedly sort of sort of sort of caveat. Um, how prepared was was the IRAF? They they didn't have enough airplanes. Um, and that was one of the priorities that Churchill recognized early on that that if they, if they were going to win this win this fight and 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 winning at that point early on meant preventing Germany from invading. You know there was that that Germany would invade um, England um, seemed to many to be virtually certain. I, I, if you can imagine that how 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 scary that would have been, can, and why not? He had charged through Hitler had charged through every other part of part, and that's part of what you become you know in your book I mean there's like a moment that I literally had to take a breath and pause because you so viscerally put us in that place to feel that oh good good but but so so, so what what what, um, what Churchill recognized was that if 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 Hitler did plan to invade, and Churchill Churchill was a little bit skeptical that he ever would, because as you know, he felt that Churchill was sort of afraid of the water. <laughs> I mean, that, that Hitler was afraid of the water. But Churchill recognized that that if there were a plan to invade, that the only thing that would stop that was uh, was control of the air, air superiority mm-hmm. maintained by the RAF, and the only way to do that was with fighters, not bombers. So he saw early on that Britain really had to bolster its fighter forces, and he 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 hired, well, appointed his old friend Lord Beaverbrook, who who well maybe he wasn't quite as much the magician as he himself liked to think. He really ramped up aircraft production. But and that how fast could they produce them? Well, he, he ramped it up pretty remarkably. I mean, suddenly they went from you know producing I don't know, maybe a hundred planes to. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm getting these these numbers wrong, but by order of magnitude, I mean he doubled and tripled production. So in a you, very in a very short time. Well, that's what was shocking to me. So all of a sudden, I become aware, which so I'll just put myself in the like you know dumb category, <laughs> that Hitler now has the west coast of France. Yes, he is now and a. It's important, and it's important to know that, that 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 when France fell, which was which was, I, I think we today forget how much of a shocker exactly that was. the fact you know France France remaining intact was an integral part of British strategic thinking, and in terms of air defense, also the the assumption was that if there were going to be any incursion um, over over British airspace by the Luftwaffe, it would be from bombers coming from Germany. Therefore, they and, would and, have. And, the challenge of and, distance, and they not only that they would not be able to be they would not be accompanied by fighters. Fighters couldn't cover the distance, so they would be very vulnerable. So this was part of their thinking. So France 
falls, and suddenly the Luftwaffe has bases that are like, you know, just minutes. Two minutes away. Minutes. Minutes away. Yeah. And it, it changed completely their, 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 the, the British uh, um, uh, in terms of their strategic thinking. Now, internally in Germany, because the other aspect of the book, I mean, there were so many aspects that were riveting and enlightening, but one was to really understand the difference in how Hitler's inner circle, Goebbels, Hess, and Goring, had different views of how to go about winning the war. So share with us, what was it that contributed or stopped Hitler from just all-out bombing in England to smithereens? You know, I don't think anybody can actually answer that question um, as to as to why Hitler did not just suddenly decide to 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 invade. Um, there is speculation that um, he really was uneasy about the prospect of 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 crossing a body of water with his with his forces, and he would, of course, had to have done that. You 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 could not have invaded from the air. You could prepare for invasion from the air, but you could not invade from the air. Um, why I I I I find myself you know, sometimes just mulling that, like why didn't he just go go for it? And know? who was it that wanted him to Goring? Well, Goering. Oh, Goering. Goering, uh, head of the Luftwaffe, uh, had his own agenda. He wanted to. He wanted to be. He wanted to be a, a god within within the Reich, and he was sort of looking out for for his own interests as much as anything. And else. legacy. And he he believed. I think he believed. He certainly argued that um, he could conceivably bring Britain to its knees just by air power alone. That is, he could bring Churchill to some sort of negotiating table and and end that aspect of the war, thereby freeing Germany to do what it wanted to in, in the East, in Russia. And there was some sentiment that Churchill would surrender. There was in, in Germany, um, they, they, they were perplexed that you know the senior leaders were perplexed that that Churchill did not capitulate, and there were some in in, in Britain also who who likewise were were um, not, not advocating necessarily, but were would would contemplate you know maybe we should do a deal maybe maybe that would be the way to go. Now Churchill, happily for I think for all of us and for history, was like no way. No way are we going to do a deal with Hitler. And that that really drove Hitler wild. So one of the things that you so rivetingly talk about is the impact of Churchill's ability to marry kind of a pragmatic view of what was going on with a kind of optimism that was comforting to the British people because you could imagine 57, is it 56 or 57? 57 nights of, of, of con bombing. consecutive nights of bombing and then for the next six months at intervals, massive raids as you, well. You could see where the Brits would say, no more. I mean, Buckingham Palace had been attacked, 10 Downing Street right. had been attacked, people's lives were totally disrupted. So... What was it that he managed to do in that in those speeches? 
Well, you know, it wasn't. First of all, it wasn't just in the speeches. But what what he managed to do through a combination of things, through speeches, through actions, was he managed to to be this beacon of of, of confidence and courage of unwavering conviction that Britain would not only would not only endure but would prevail and he leavened this though with a sober assessment of what was happening you know he understood that you can you know you 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 can sell an idea to a point but it, you, you got to tell the truth as well did he believe that britain could prevail he he believed he, it's it's complicated he he believed it depends, of course, on what what phase. He believed that that Britain would endure, but to prevail, he also knew or, or recognized early on that the only way that Britain would be victorious in this fight is if the U.S. came in on Britain's side. So and he recognized that very early on, and and reached out to and, well, he courted Roosevelt. <laughs> and, you know, he himself at one point he says nobody, no lover ever courted a, you know, his his you know his love uh, with the attention that that Churchill courted Roosevelt. I mean, from the very beginning, and significantly a call once France fell in June. Well, yes, yes, there was that, but, but really, it was more this, this more the pattern of 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 courtship, you know, making Roosevelt a partner in his thinking about what was happening. I mean, it's really, really very clever. I Do think you think smart. that was the critical component to Britain's being able to prevail? Well, to be victorious, yeah. I mean, they needed we the world needed America to join join the war. Um, and I, I do feel that the 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 pivotal moment um, in terms of changing the the momentum was obviously was Pearl Harbor when America mm. did enter the war. But until that point, um, uh, Britain desperately needed American aid and and got it. And, and, got and it. it was Churchill Churchill who who I think in wooing Roosevelt managed to to to. Uh, uh, so prepare the waters that you know lend lease became became you know the lend lease law became right. a, became uh, became became law in America and that provided a, a you know a fire hose of 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 aid to 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 Britain and also brought some very interesting characters who are also part of the book. So one another piece of information that I hadn't um, known about is right after Pearl Harbor. Churchill takes the battleship Duke of York for a secret trip to the White House to strategize with right. Roosevelt about how to conduct the war. Right. How did someone not stop him from doing that? <laughs> I mean, you know, that feels shocking to me. Well, yeah, I know, I know. When you think about it, and actually, it's, it's even, I mean, there are U-boats there. I know, I know. It's, it, it's, it's even worse than that. I mean, not only was it Churchill, it was virtually his entire government went along. Beaverbrook was on the ship. Yes, yes. And 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 when you think about the fact that the seas were full of U-boats and and the planes were full of you know Luftwaffe. Aircraft and so forth, it's 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 pretty remarkable to say nothing of the routine things that can can destroy a ship. I mean, when it set out, it was a, there was an incredible storm, and the, the the speed of the ship was reduced to a fraction of 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 its maximum. And they had been counting on its high speed to help it evade submarines and so forth. But you're quite right. I mean, almost his entire government was on was on this ship, and and very similar thing happened when 
when early on when he was trying to encourage France to stay in the fight, he went over with with a good percentage of his of his government. This is one thing that I personally I'm, I'm a nervous flyer, so this had a certain re- resonance. <laughs> So here's here's Churchill. He 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 he. You know, not just one visit, five visits, five to visits to France by air in his beloved Flamingo aircraft, the twin-engine um, passenger um, plane, outfitted with these very comfy armchairs, a great great aircraft. But you know, it's, that was at a time when 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 aircraft you know were not that reliable. People were constantly dying in aircraft accidents, and the sky was full of Luftwaffe fighters. I mean, who in his right? What his right mind is going to do that? And that was Churchill. So just to add some levity to what was not a um, remotely funny time, uh, one of the stories you have in the book is um, Churchill's staying at the White House and Roosevelt comes to the door. Yeah. What happened? Well, so, yeah. so so I love this story. Yeah, so Churchill, Churchill what well, among his among his staff was known to have absolutely no no sense of, uh, of 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 vanity. I mean, what you saw was what you got, and usually you, you saw everything. So so in the White House, um, there was this moment when when there's a knock at the door, um, and Churchill's bodyguard is in is in the room and opens the go- door, and outside is Roosevelt in his wheelchair, and he sees Roosevelt looking past him with this sort of odd look on his face. He turns to see that Winston Churchill is in the room behind him, stark naked, stark naked. Smoking a cigar. Smoking a cigar, stark naked. And uh, the president starts to, to, to wheel his chair backward, and, and uh, Churchill says, uh, says, no, no, you know, um, uh, I can't remember me. the exact. No, I can't remember the exact <laughs> quote. But the, but he says essentially, as you know, I've, I I will keep nothing from the president of the United States. <laughs> so that was an, a cute scene. And did they go on to have a talk with? No. Church? Oh yeah. I mean, yeah. This was a this was a, a very important meeting actually in D.C. And it also culminated in I think one of the most moving moments was when um, at at Christmas Churchill spoke from the White House, and it was mm. to a crowd of like 40,000 people. Uh, very moving with Christmas carols and everything. I was just, just you know, on the, on the verge of- And Pearl of the, Harbor had Pearl just Harbor been invaded. Pearl just happened. Everybody knew what was going to happen next. America was going to be deep in this war. So it was a very, very moving thing. Did you- My, my favorite little detail is the fact that, the fact that during the same trip, um, they- um, uh, they flew into into D.C. Churchill and his 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 cadre of of of, of government officials, and um, uh, the bodyguard who who uh, who I love, he pointed out that that something something that we lose touch with. Um, Britain, London was completely blacked out, mm. completely blacked out from the air. It was impossible to see. Well, almost impossible to see. And suddenly, here they are flying over Washington D.C. with all the streets lit, and it was just yeah. such a moving moment. You know, it's just like, that's beautifully written in the book, Eric. Oh, good, good, thank you. Um, I, you know, there are a couple of scenes too to that end where you talk about different people, uh, John um, Coville, Corville, Coville, Coville, going to a window and expressing fascination with the beauty. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah, of, no, he, yeah. He, of the lights and the bombing. Yeah, it, it, in London. Yes, yeah. He goes to a window. He watches this very intense raid, and he is struck by by the beauty, and 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 that's why the book is called "The Splendid and the Vile," because he he comments that it was such a such an odd mix of of human splendor and vile vileness. So. And, 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 and he's not alone, actually, in, in appreciating the the beauty of. Uh, it's, it, it you know, the city's blacked out. The city's blacked out, but but there was, yeah, there there was this, this sort of mix of colors and noise and searchlights and so forth, and people found it very dramatic. And speaking of the splendid, I mean, the other element that you talk about and maybe share with us one of your favorite stories about that is. To some extent, in Mary's diaries would be a good example, splendid life was going on. Yes. They were going to clubs and entertaining and day life was slightly normal. No, day life was more than slightly normal. I mean, it was it think life life went on, and that was one of the important things that I, I really wanted to highlight and get at in the book. Um, Mary, um, I, I think one of my favorite stories is how, um, well— First of all, Mary was. I love that she was an anti-gunner. <clears throat> uh, in the end, in the end, in the end, the yes, end. yes. But and that's that. Thanks for giving that away. But anyway, anyway. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, but what I loved about Mary was, you know, um, first of all, they, they, the the Churchills essentially farmed her out to the country to, mm-hmm. to to protect her, and she chafed at that because she really wanted to be part of the war. But you know, they were the, she and her her friend um, were were were. In her friend's house near a uh, near a bomber base, and the bombers would engage in what they referred to as um, beating up, which was when bombers would fly super low over over Mary and her friends, because you know, of course, they're flirting. They're using these bombers to flirt, and the the, the girls just loved it. And there were these parties with the RAF, and and as 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 Mary herself says in the diary, there were snogging sessions in the hayloft. You know, this, all this charming stuff. But my favorite thing with regard to Mary and how life went on was that despite all this stuff, despite intense bombing, chaos, and everything else, they still had the debutante ball, the Queen's Charlotte ball every year. Year They still had it that and year. And it wasn't suspended. One. No, no. And so, and, and, and that particular night was 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 really very dramatic because here was this ball they 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 did the whole ball they could actually hear a raid underway thumpings and whatnot in the distance this was an underground ballroom um, and then when it was over the girls um, uh, and the girl Mary and her friends um, set out to go clubbing they were going to go to a club <laughs> and, uh, and the place they wanted to go uh, highest on their list was this place called the Café de, Par- de Paris or Café de Paris and a, v- a very, very, very popular club. And so they set out for this club and uh, they couldn't reach it because it had been bombed that very night in a particularly gruesome, tragic way. But then they went on to another club and danced away. So mm. now I think about what I think about, it, like in terms of Mary, I mean, I'm a father of three daughters and I've got anxieties, you know, up the wazoo, you know, about what's, you know, boyfriends and smoke detectors and so forth. I can't imagine how somebody like Churchill could have coped with his knowing his family was in harm's way from the German Air Force, you know, those 57 nights of bombing and all the other raids. I mean, how do you do that? Well, there was another thing I thought about when, when because you vividly, and in a slightly different way from other um, 
uh, recollections of this uh, that I've read that you that you you understood the blitz when when those sirens went off and people some people you said stayed home and they stayed in their beds some people yeah. went to the public transport uh, transit system right. some went to the bomb shelters one of the things that made me wonder about to what extent do you think the blitz uh, informed foreign policy for Britain after World War II. I mean, because after World War, after II. World War II, because they, you know, over here in the United States, I mean, obviously we lost soldiers, there was horrible death, but our houses were, you know, pretty intact. We were living through right, the war. Right. Do you think having lived through the Blitz the way London and England did changed how they thought about foreign policy and engagement subsequent to the war? I would have to think about that. I I I I don't uh, talk about that a little more. What 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 do you mean? What 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 kind of foreign policy? Well, because it it what it would make me wonder about is that they would be resistant to getting involved and overreaching and running the risk of subjecting themselves to that again. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas in the U.S. You might be a little less risk averse. Do, do you think that the Blitz might 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 have made um, Britain uh, more reluctant to engage in foreign wars and so forth? Exactly. You know, I would like to think that that's the case, but I don't. I don't think that's yeah. really what happened. They they got involved in various wars as well. Um, so I I I I don't I don't I'm not really the guy to answer that question. But I don't I don't think. I don't think so. You know, the other question that, that comes to mind, I was talking to someone about the book because since I've read it, I haven't stopped talking about it. <laughs> and they said, I was talking about how Roosevelt was worried about his reelection, was trying to help without undercutting public opinion in his favor. And Wendell Wilkie was trying to run against him by saying, you know, your, your sons are going to be dead if you elect him. And someone... Uh, I was speaking with mention that there have been rumors or speculation that Roosevelt had some hint that Pearl Harbor was going to be invaded, but knew he needed an invasion to enter the war. Did you come across anything like that? Uh, you know, you're getting into the, 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 the body of Pearl Harbor conspiracy stories and, and, and there too. I mean, I'm, I am not the guy to address mm. that. I, I, I think that... I think that Pearl Harbor, you know, I have read glancingly into Pearl Harbor, and and you know, you you, you see that that things happen beforehand that you could, if you wanted, if you're of a conspiratorial mind, you could say, oh, they must they must have known. But it's also the case that there were just a lot of screw ups in terms of even just concentrating mm -hmm. the force in, in Pearl Harbor. So I'm not really equipped to 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 answer that. But one thing I can tell you is that Churchill was was <laughs> definitely surprised, you know, by by Pearl Harbor, and I believe Roosevelt was as well. Mm. Um, the other thing I thought about with all the archival material, what, do you worry about with the way um, letters are disappearing and the way people communicate now that there is a loss of archival material that will be able to build 
in the future an understanding of our times? You know, I, do I worry about it? Um, let's put it this way. I, 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 I think about it. And, and um, you know, in, in the areas that I like to work in, um, letters are one of the most important important assets people wrote lovely long beautiful letters and 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 diaries i mean i mean the 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 british at the higher echelons um were articulate were really very very good writers as well as as well as diarists and and some of the diaries are, are fantastic but you know um so a lot of that has gone by the wayside now but other things have have come in that will be just as valuable, if not more so. For example, you know, um, Twitter. I mean, you, you want an immediate sense of something unfolding. You got tweets from various people. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, some people tweet who probably should a little too but, much. <laughs> but um, yeah, so 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 tweets. Um, people post things on Instagram and Facebook and whatnot, and there are there are. A lot more likely to be videos of things. I would love to have had. I would love mm -hmm. it if somebody had had an iPhone aboard the Lusitania. That would have made my my research for my for that book of mine a lot easier. You know, so so things are going to balance. I mean, you won't have the letters, but you'll have video records of things happening. You know, I'm sure you're asked this all the time, and I hate to ask questions that other people ask, but it's a little hard to resist. It is. Your subjects have covered such a stunning array that have very little unifying history about them. Maybe this book and um, uh, the book that took place in Berlin about um, the, the ambassador. Garbages. But how do you how do you come up with these topics, and how much research do you do before you commit to that topic? It's it's. The, the process of coming up with the idea is sort of the hardest part of what I do, and it usually takes, honestly, about a year since between when I finish a book and when I start the next one. And that's because not obviously not every idea um, uh, is amenable to my approach to writing history. I, I, I'm in this for the story. You're right? a storyteller. I'm in this for the story. I mean, they're true stories, but I'm in this for the yeah. story. I, I look for, for ideas that can be told in story form um, with a beginning and a middle and an end. They just happen to be true. And so, and, and, and it, it, it's actually hard to find stories like that. Um, because, you know, a lot of them have been done, told already. Um, and, um, a lot of, a lot of stories can't, can't be told that way. For example, I had somebody come up to me very, very nicely after, a, after a talk and said, you know, it's not, <coughs> excuse me, it's the hundredth anniversary of the auto industry. Why don't you do a book about the auto industry? I said, well, okay, but what's, <coughs> excuse me, but what's the story? You know, what's the story? Mm -hmm. who, 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 who's in this? Where's the passion? Where's the blood and guts and so forth? So, so it's hard to find stories like that. What's uh, a book that you thought you would do, but then as you looked into it, abandoned it? There was, uh, I, 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 I actually got to the point where I'd done a full book proposal um, uh, about, um, about William uh, Mulholland, the, uh, the water 
King in in California, mm-hmm. specifically about the failure of the St. Francis Dam in 1920-something or other, which killed about 500-some mm. people um, in the L.A. basin and destroyed Mulholland's career. And that kind of intrigued me, the the, the, the disaster aspect, of course, and, and but also the the kind of the run up to it, this this the building of this substandard dam and how it also just ended ended his career, juxtaposed against um, the creation of that water system to begin with. Um, and when I was done with the proposal though, I realized I realized something was missing. I could not tell you what that thing was. But as I tried to explain it to my agent, I said, you know, the, the story lacks heart. Mm. It lacked heart. So I killed it. And so that what, was six months of work. Ooh. And what surprised you the most that you learned in the process of doing this research? What surprised me the most? You know, um, I can tell you the various, the, the episodes that surprised me the most. First of all, um, I I was never actually really aware that Churchill had done these flights to France, mm. you know, in the midst of uh, War. everything, everything. I mean, France was occupied at yes. one stage of his visits. P- portions of France were occupied, yes, yes. Um, and in fact, the the, uh, the French government was moving from place to place as they were being driven out by the threat of the threat of advancing German forces. So that was to me. One thing that I, I, I was particularly <clears throat> intrigued by was the action in uh, against the French fleet in uh, in uh, Mers el Kabir in the in um, in the Mediterranean early on. Uh, relatively early on, after France fell, Churchill's primary, well, one of his his big worries was that the French fleet would fall into German hands, and if it did, it would really shift the balance in 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 the ocean. And he knew that. He knew that. He knew that for sure. That was this was one of his big concerns. So he and his chief, he chiefs of staff they 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 cooked up this plan to seize French naval ships in 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 British ports or wherever they could do it, and if necessary, destroy them. So here was this this uh, presence, uh, a massive presence of the French fleet in this Mediterranean port, Mers del Kabir, or typically it's referred to as Oran, but that was a nearby, nearby base. The main action was at Mers del Kabir. So a British force, Force H, um, um, uh, arrived, um, sent an ultimatum, and the French would not step down, and they they blew them up. You know, they destroyed a battleship with French battleship with fourteen hundred men aboard, which um, is a risky move. Uh, it was a risky move um, in that Churchill um, thought that the the French, the Free French, um, the Vichy French, also um, Vichy French, in this case, um, might actually declare war on Britain. They on were more Britain. or less. They were more or less standing standing at the at the at the sidelines. Although they were, you know, in many many ways allied with 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 Nazi Germany. So, so it was a risky thing, but it was also a very important thing because what Churchill did, he was, and he was very aware of this. This was a symbolic act. It told Roosevelt that Britain was serious, and and the Americans did see it this way. They and brave. S- well, and, and brave, yes, but that 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 Britain was was going to stick this out and was mm. was in the fight for good, but it also, more importantly told Hitler the same thing. 
And that's how things started to ramp up. And Hitler, who had really, he really had wanted to bring Churchill to the peace table, not for any benign moral reason, but because he just wanted Britain out of the way, at least for the time being. So there were peace feelers that were being delivered to, through the Swedes and through all, all, and so forth. Comes, comes, this, comes this battle uh, against the French fleet. And even Hitler's like, wait, Ooh. wait this is... This guy's serious. We got to get rid of this guy, um, and so Churchill got everybody's attention. You know, speaking about Hitler wanting to bring Churchill to the peace table, one of the stories that sort of stunned me was uh, late in that year, in the year, you know, in forty. I, I think it was in forty-one. Hess flies to England without Hitler. Knowing well, so so I have to yeah so so I have to <laughs> set the stage. Well, so so uh, one of the things that drew me drew me to this book and telling the story of this this period is is you know uh, uh, yeah if I were writing fiction I would be you know constructing the narrative you know certain ways so everything kind of came to a head at at, at the end. You know, nonfiction, of course, you can't do that. You got to go with what there is. And so yeah. in this case, though, there was there was this remarkable confluence of, of narrative threads that all came to an end on May 10th, 1941, exactly mm -hmm. one year to the day from when Churchill became prime minister. And that to me was so appealing. It had, it had this pleasantly sort of Vonnegutian, Vonnegutian feel. I mean, here was, here was Mary in personal turmoil and her, her situation comes to an end on May 10th. Um, here was, you know, essentially this was the last and, and, and arguably the biggest raid of this first phase of the war. I mean, they were- And devastating. The, devastating. And, and the Blitz, the, well, the Blitz, I mean, um, German air raids continued throughout the war, ebbing and flowing. But this, this, this first year was when this was the primary, primary, you know, campaign by the Luftwaffe. That came to an end on May 10th. And then, of all things, on May 10th, here comes, here comes- <laughs> You couldn't have made this up. You could not make this up. Here comes Rudolf Hess flying, you know, by himself uh, in, in, a, in, a, in a Messerschmitt um, to, to um, uh, essentially deliver a, a, a peace feeler to a Scottish duke. <laughs> like the Duke of Hamilton, was it? The Duke of Hamilton, and he, and he parachutes from this plane um, over Scotland on the night of May 10th. And, and it's like, you just, as you say, you can't make this stuff up. And did you realize what a perfect um, sort of arc there would be with this May 10th to May 10th when you first conceived of the book? You know, when, when, I, when I had my lens, right, my, my, the thing I wanted to do, and I started, started doing the reading, um, I pretty quickly realized that all these things were going to coalesce. Um, I didn't. I didn't really know about Mary. Mm -hmm. I mean, I had an inkling that this this thing was going. Her 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 situation was going to be resolved. Culminate about them. But I didn't have any 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 sense that it was going to be exactly the the same day. And when I found out that everything was, you know, tying it, the, the, coming to this head on May tenth. I was just wow. That's that's it. That this this is my story. Now I foolishly thought that the narrative was sort of a slam dunk, and this would be a piece of cake, you know. And I wouldn't I wouldn't even have to propose this to my to my editor. 
not, luck, not so cooler, quick, luckily, Eric. Cooler, cooler, <laughs> cooler heads prevail. And I did, I did a very, very detailed proposal on the thing. And it turned out, though, to be much tougher narrative, mainly because there's just so much stuff. There was so much. I mean, I, when I was reading the book, I thought, this could be a story. This could be a story. Yeah. This could be a story. You know, when you obviously pull it together brilliantly, the, the, the um, last... Uh, question before I'm going to have you uh, read uh, something is th- that we've sort of circled around, but I- I'd like to ask it again. After doing this research, how inevitable was it really that Britain could have prevailed? Or how unlikely was it that Britain might not have prevailed in this year before Roosevelt is fully in, France has fallen? What did it look like in that moment? Well, you know, I mean, to me, to my eye, as as, as somebody coming to this from from outside the you know the the, the realm. It, it, was, it seemed remarkably, remarkably lucky that that Churchill happened to come to the fore in, mm-hmm. in that moment. <clears throat> and you know, there there were, I think, even Churchill himself at one time sort of makes an allusion to perhaps that there was some other divine, you know, uh, force behind all all that happened because Churchill played such a central role. Um, in um, in in saving saving the day. I mean, the way I like to think about it, I not like to think about, but the way I, it, I, I think it's instructive to think about. Suppose on one of those flights to France, he'd been shot down and killed. Yeah. Who would have taken his place? Would Britain then have have capitulated? Capitulated, um, uh, or um, and would. What would have happened then? It's you know it's speculative history. I don't like to engage no, in course. speculative history, but it but it is tantalizing to think about because there was this yeah this pressure you know from some to 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 come to the table and 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 the argument being okay if we if we at least make a temporary peace we can be building our forces and building our air force and so forth for whatever's going to come down the pike. Um, but it's tantalizing to think about. I just can't. Yeah. yeah, and the other thing that it can't help but make most of us think about is where is that kind of leadership in the world today? <laughs> I know. You know, the kind of um, fearless, um, I, even though he was a character, he was a man. Yeah, fe- fearless integrity. Yeah. Integrity and— And articulate, articulate. And with Speech. the ability to inspire. So I, I think what I'd like to do, Eric, um, is before I close, I, I love found... love post-its you've got. There. Oh, yeah. So you're worse than me. Um, is this exquisite paragraph uh, that you have that I thought um, was so both touching right, right there. With just this yeah, one, just yeah. that one little paragraph? Oh, yeah. okay. You could read more. 
Yeah. So, so I'll just sort of set the scene for this mm-hmm. paragraph. This is this is as the narrative. Um, all the strands are sort of coming together, have come together on May 10th, and the book is essentially coming to 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 an end. And so, so I write, um, and so with family turmoil, civic trauma, and Hitler's deputy falling from the sky, the first year of Church's leadership came to an end. Against all odds, Britain stood firm, its citizens more emboldened than cowed. Somehow, through it all, Churchill had managed to teach them the art of being fearless. Pretty beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Pretty beautiful. So, and I think that is what he did. He taught them. He taught them the art of being fearless. And I think being fearless is 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 kind of an art. And in reading the book, you know, and encouraging everybody to pick this book up and learn, you know, what you always do for us, Eric, we learn history in a way that makes it feel human. It's about people. Ultimately, it's always about people, right? Right. Thank you. You know, fearless pilots, fearful pilots, fearful leaders, fearless leaders. And, but to me, the the most shocking part was how precarious that year of May 10th, 1940 to 1941 was and how many things came together for us to end up the way we ended up at the world at World War II. And I think, you know, I pride myself in being reasonably well-read. You know, it's like every 40 pages I was stunned (laughs) to (laughs) understand from another perspective just what that looked like. Well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, it really was a precarious time. You know, it's, it, uh, one one uh, one nice thing because I because I the the realm of Churchill is one of those things. Sort of like writing about the Civil War. You know, yeah. You know. Um, <laughs> right. And, and and so I I, I deliberately um, sent this book out to uh, three Churchillian experts, you know, and I was delighted to find that um, they all kind of weighed in uh, um, with their their fixes, their their suggestions and so forth, which is great. But they were also all like, you know, um, we were surprised. <laughs> you know, they, they, really? were, they, were, they were surprised. It's like, oh, you, you said something that I didn't know or that was new. And, and Well, I, I like thought that. it was a dimension of him that felt a little bit different his relationship with his close in advisors and who they were yes well but this is something that I, I felt very very strongly about early on his you know he 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 had what he referred to as his secret circle the mm. people who were in in his in his circle who, who were were part of this whole drama who would share with whom he would share information who would provide counsel and so forth and and it it becomes very clear that churchill again you know did not do it alone that these people were vital to him um and they were in their own right <laughs> really compelling characters like frederick lindemann the uh, his his close uh, science science advisor um you know this yeah, that was crazy this, this tall sort of bleak um, Gray pallor, um, vegetarian, you know, look of disdain on his face at all times. Who was this? This this very interesting presence but in Churchill's key. life. He was he was very important. He was very important for Churchill. He's also kind of a 
he had his, his nutty obsessions, you know, which Churchill endorsed. Churchill loved gadgets and secret weapons, you know, that kind of thing. That was another aspect. But Frederick Lindemann, I thought, was a very compelling character. Mm-hmm. And Lord Beaverbrook. I mean, Lord Beaverbrook. <laughs> it was a different way of thinking about Lord Beaverbrook. I had read about him in some small ways. Yeah, yeah, no, very. And I, you know, I, and I, I personally, I have a particular passion for the, for the, for the more sordid dramatic elements, like like uh, um, uh, Churchill's son Randolph and his his unhappy wife uh, Pamela, Pamela, who who goes on to uh, what a wily woman, huh? What a wily woman, <laughs> uh, uh, so young yet so. So capable of, you know, as as one of, uh, it was Clarissa Churchill. Churchill's niece said she had an eye for chances. Mm. Yeah, I mean, Randolph and Pamela alone were worth the price of admission of the book. (laughs) Well, thank you. Thank you. No, I love- We uh, didn't get to that because I wanted to sound stately and historical about it. (laughs) Yeah, well, forget that. This, 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 you know, this. So, Eric, what do you hope- People will take most take away from this book. Well, you know, I, I take away. I'm uh, what what my hope is, as I always feel about my books. My hope is, especially now in this time when a political turmoil. You know, um, I think I think this book provides will provide readers with with a chance to kind of um, sink into a past era where there was so much at stake and, and, and where there were these vivid characters and where there was this sort of heroic aspect that we don't have today, you know. And that, I mean, as I was working on this, I was struck almost on a daily basis by the contrast between this world, you know, with, I mean, it's obviously full of trauma and, and, and drama and so forth, but... How 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 much I preferred dwelling in this world in, mm. that I depict in the book than in what's going on today. Politics. And do you think do you think we're on a trajectory, or do you think this kind of leadership, this kind of commitment, can come back? Meaning, we're in a phase as opposed to a direction that doesn't bode well. I am a big believer in the Hegelian dialectic, which is that his, a history, big word, moves, Eric. <laughs> that history moves in, 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 uh, as a pendulum. Mm-hmm. And we are now in, um, on, in the swing of a particular pendulum, but I believe that once that, uh, that, that arc is exhausted, the pendulum will swing back and we will get once more, I think we will we will have our heroes. We will have important men rise to the occasion, and and women. Um, uh, and I, I I I I have hope. I have to have hope. You know, the danger is losing perspective. Mm-hmm. You know, you just you can't think of Churchill. 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 I would love to know um, what he would have felt about today. Yeah, because he had the long view. He understood history. Mm-hmm. He he would have understood that. Well, he was a man of history. A man of history, and he might have he 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 would have understood that this this really this too shall pass. Yeah, you know, and and it's funny. I I I I heard um, I heard a talk in New York at the Ninety Second Street Y. Um, James Comey was being interviewed. Mm. And he was very reassuring. He said, "He said, you know, it's it's important. Really, I, he, he was stressing that same idea. It's important to keep perspective." He said, "You know, you know, this 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 will pass. This will pass. We're going to be okay. Mm-hmm. We're going to be okay." But he also added, "But it's very important to keep the receipts. You know, 
keep yeah. track of who's who's selling out the country, who's selling out democracy, yeah. and um, and 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 make sure the world knows it. Well, I'm going to end our conversation on that optimistic uh, note. We've been talking with Eric Larson, uh, the author of the splendid book entitled The Splendid and the Vile, a saga of Churchill, family, and defiance uh, during the Blitz, like all of Eric's books. Uh, This is bound to be a bestseller. It's going to be a must read and it remains as riveting as all your books uh eric thank you so much thank you for having me you've been listening to just the right book with roxanne cody brought to you by lit hub radio the show is produced by roxanne cody michael selick johnny diamond and lit hub radio our editor is justin alvarez the original theme music is by kurt feldman You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening.